Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. If you like what we do, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast app, as this really helps more people discover the show. Thank you for being with us, and enjoy the episode. Today, we have a special episode featuring inside provider Kyle Rudden and his series on ESG investing. As Kyle covers quite a lot of ground, we split this session into two episodes. We'll continue with part two. Without further ado, let's go to today's discussion. Um, war in the Ukraine and Russia. You know, like I said before, it, there's always a skirmish going on somewhere in the world. But in terms of, um, you know, a real large scale conflict at its peak, you know, I'm, I'm particularly aware of, of U.S. and everything. I, I know when, when, when we were like totally winding down and not, I'm not talking about the recent Afghanistan debacle, but I'm talking about, you know, combat troops in Iraq and Afghanistan combat phase stuff, like in 2010, 2011, I was just starting with ESG then. There really hasn't been a, a conflict of, of this scale. And you know, not just the Ukraine's a, a small country, but I'm talking about the scale, I'm talking about this ge- geopolitical scale and the ramifications. There's not been something like this during a time where ESG was so mainstream. Um, like the last time something like this happened, ESG was still niche. So it's it's really interesting. It's it's new kind of uncharted territory in many respects. Um, and it's, it's really multifaceted and, and complicated. Um, I've got a number of questions, uh, like I said, one on a webinar, a number of via email about this, um, it's kind of Ukraine and, and ESG. These are more kind of somewhat random observations, but, but, but related. So the first thing that comes to mind just in terms of war and ESG is controversial weapons, right? As a, as a screen or as a scene stock. But, before I get into that kind of stuff, I just want to point out that this is, as I said on the title side, like a cluster bomb of TBO issues. You know, it, re- it really it hits all pillars, right? So the, the triple bottom line, in case people aren't aware of it, it's um, a full cost accounting method that's kind of been, been borrowed by the sustainability issue world. It's basically ESG plus another pillar, right? So ESG is environmental, social, and governance without technically without any consideration of financial and economic factors. Triple bottom line is ESG plus financial factors or economic factors, whatever term you want to use. And technically, the triple bottom line, triple three, pillar one is environmental, pillar two is social, which includes governance, and pillar three is economic, it's people, planet, and profit. My point here is, and I broke on the right side, I broke it down before, just because it's clear, uh, that, that war, and particularly this war, hits on all pillars and hits them hard. I mean, social is number one, it's humanitarian issues at, at the top, you know, talking about people dying, you know, on, on, on both sides, civilians and, and military personnel, um, all war is bad. And, and then if they're not getting killed, there, there are other issues, you know, homelessness and lack of potable water and food. And, you know, all these, these ESG issues and global sustainability issues like availability of potable water, Right, that's a big one. There are sustainable sustainable development goals about it. There are uh, indexed funds that are that are water funds. It's a big issue, 
And overnight, you can create a, a, a really big problem with war. There are environmental impacts. You know, Russia's military vehicles aren't hybrids or, or EVs. You know, they're, they're spewing smoke. Ordnance has a lot of heavy metals in it and other toxic chemicals. Um, not, not to mention unexploded ordnance, particularly cluster bombs. That's a social issue. And these all overlap. If you've seen any of the videos, you know, you think like um, agriculture in, in Southeast Asia is bad for deforestation and land clearing by burning. I mean, just, you know, watch some of the Ukraine videos. Deforestation by heavy metals and toxic chemicals. Um, and, and there are other issues that, that, you know, Chernobyl was a concern for a while. So environmental impacts, while they're not those obvious necessarily, um, particularly when you see people getting killed, you don't think about the environment right away, um, but they're big environmental politics. And, you know, of course, governance, you know, across the board, it's a ge global geopolitical mess. Putin and Biden doesn't know what to do with this. And Europe's confused and there are like, you know, economic interests and then social feelings like, you know, we should be doing this, we shouldn't be doing this. You know, comp companies have, were initially slow to, to pull out of Russia, some haven't. It's just, it's, it, it's a geopolitical mess and it, 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 um, it, it creates future geopolitical conflict and confusion. And, and you know, it's, it's Russia and, and Ukraine and Europe, but then there's the US and China. It's just really complex. So governance is involved. And then economics, um, you know, economic sanctions uh, off the bat, I mean, that's what comes to mind, crippling. Right. But that, that's also a social issue where right? Russian population, you know, Vladimir Putin may have, have asked for sanctions or had to expect sanctions. But the general population is suffering for something they probably had nothing to do with and might have disagreed with. You know, those economic sanctions are, are going to cause other hardships, uh, healthcare system, you know, shortfalls and disease. So if it goes on long enough. So there are the four pillars. Right work triple bottom line pillars, technically three, but, um, and you can kind of see the interrelations of all of them. Um, but I was just going to go through a few more um, kind of war-related issues. One, one being the issue of, um, I was going to talk about the issue of controversial weapons as a sin stock or contra you know, defense contractors that produce controversial weapons and munitions. That's a sin stock, right? So sin stocks back in the day of ethical ESG investing, you know, it's like pornography, alcohol, tobacco, gambling, you know, controversial weapons and probably a couple of other things. Controversial weapons being really military grade weapons, weapons of mass destruction, not, not you know, the, the browning hunting rifle that, you know, someone's going to use, you know, in Northern Europe to go get Christmas dinner or whatever they do. I'm talking about, you know, cluster bombs and uh, nuclear warheads and landmines and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, Military-grade munitions with um, significant um, potential to harm masses of innocent civilians, that sort of thing. That's historically been a sit and stop, but, and, and no one's ever questioned it. Th those are bad. I, and if you look at, you know, I've been doing a, a big research project on, on Southeast Asian banks and their, their policies, and I've been picking apart exclusionary lists what kind of projects they won't finance or clients they won't finance or thresholds they need to meet. You know, and, and all of them have a very predict certain very predictable exclusions. Um, and and uh, top of the list is, is um, controversial weapons of, of all sorts. What surprised me, though, is, um, so it's never been an issue. Everybody's kind of been in agreement that nuclear war is bad and cluster bombs 
you know, landing in a civilian apartment block is bad. But suddenly the debate is, is well, the conversation is divided and there are two sides to it. And it's really confusing and contradictory. So, you, you know, depending on who's your team, you know, are, are you a fan of Vlad and, and, and Russia or are you rooting for the Ukrainians, right? So, so suddenly military uh, weapons and munitions can be good for one side and not the other, right? It can be used by one side to kill the other, or you know, some of the weapons could be used by the other side to not get killed by the other by killing them first. All right. So so there's this kind of perverse argument that I've never seen before that should during times of war, should these defense stocks uh, and, and manufacturers of controversial weapons that ha- have forever historically been in the sin stock category, should they be taken out of the sin stock category during times of war if they provide weapons that help the Ukrainians or if they provide weapons or, or you know, technology that's going to help Putin's forces get back in order and on the game. It's just amazing. It's never been like that. And it's, it's a lose-lose. It really, you know, particularly if you've got a person on both sides kind of arguing that issue. There aren't many other um, ESG issues such as those that I meant that, that are controversial of being debated. I mean, they're bad, right? It's, war is bad for the social pillow world. Kills me. You know, no one's really debating whether or not the effect of war on social issues is a bad thing. But with weapons, it's it, the controversial weapons categories and stocks, it's, it's amazing. I, you know, I don't know. Um, no one's really taken action on it. When I say no one, I'm talking about like NSCI or Refinitiv. No one's taken action on that. But it'd be interesting to see if if someone does, and, and that suddenly comes out of like sustainalytics uh, assessment of controversial products or businesses, if, you, if you've read enough index methodologies, you know that controversial business screens or product screens are often a preliminary screen. So if that suddenly gets pulled or, or, or reduced, it could be a lot of changes in index constituents or weightings. Uh, it has a lot of potential. I don't, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I have a feeling this thing's going to end uh, in terms of um, you know, active combat and everything relatively soon. If this thing were to drag on for five or 10 years, we might see big, big changes on the ESG side. But I just, I don't think that it, it's going to last long enough that you'll see MSI changing it. But, but it, my point is though, that the conversation has gotten hot enough and real enough that I could see potentially or conceivably this war changing the way um, that controversy is treated and the way ESG scores are calculated and the way indexes are, are constituted and, and weighted and assets under the specific holdings for all the AUM linked to these indexes. So you never know. Um, that was it. I, I did have one or two more points, but they, were, they weren't critical. Um, if there are any um, questions you need clarification on, I'd be happy to answer. You seem to have covered all the bases here, Kyle. Uh, so Annette Dundee asks, since there isn't a structured format for ESG reporting for companies, how can beginner investors look into companies that claim uh, to be part of the ESG umbrella as it can be mistaken as their efforts for UNSDG? Uh, and what is your take on companies that may be pollutive in nature, but uh, take part in carbon credit exchange or any forms of green adoption? So two-part question here. I yeah. can repeat the two parts if you if you need me to, Kyle. So how does an investor new to ESG ascertain whether or not um, the company's greenwashing, basically? Uh, That would be my understanding, yes. Okay. 
um, a number of ways. First and foremost, you know, if you're looking at what, you know, however they disclose, if they disclose a separate sustainability report, or if you're looking at an integrated annual report with the sustainability information in it, look and see if, um, and it's usually towards the end, like when you see the auditor sign off on something, look and see if they have uh, assurance. So basically sustainability and ESG data can be audited by a third party and signed off on a lot like, and I say that um, carefully, I'm, I'll caveat it in a second, but a lot like a regular order, like you know uh, Deloitte or PricewaterhouseCoopers or whatever, PwC. But the, the issue there is it, it, that's not regulated. So you don't have to be a, a CPA to do an ESG audit. You could be, I mean, technically, you know, I could say, hey, I've been covering this stuff for 14 years, 13 years. I'm, I'm an ESG expert. I'm going to start, you know, providing insurance. I probably never get in my first client, but it's, it, it, there's nothing keeping uh, like MSCI, for example, to start doing uh, assurance. I think that would be a bad business decision on that part, but they, you know, they've got the, the, the name recognition, the brand, the clout, you know, they could probably break into it. There's nothing legally or regulatory about holding back. That's going to change soon. But for the most part, companies that do get insurance, do get insurance from a pretty big name. So the, the, same big accounting houses that do financial audits and sign off are also doing ESG and sustainability. And they either subcontract out to like um, carbon carbon emissions experts, engineers, et cetera, and so forth, but they have them in house or whatever. But so the first step is look and see if they have insurance because if, if they have assurance uh, at the end, it's basically saying, you know, I such and such a firm, you know, have, have reviewed the, their scope one, two and three carbon emissions and, you know, we certify that they're accurate within X percent, you know, et cetera, and so forth. Most of them are for by reputable names. So even though like an ENY isn't necessarily licensed or, or certified or, you know, they didn't take an ESG test, it's still a pretty reputable firm and they're not going to risk anything by not knowing their stuff and signing off on something. So that's, that's the easiest and first step. Unfortunately, not every company does have insurance. Um, they don't for two main reasons. One, they wouldn't get it, and not necessarily because they're lying or anything like that, but they, they haven't dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's, particularly if the company's new to reporting. Another issue is that it's expensive. So if it's a smaller firm that, that probably can't even afford to put together that sustainability report in the first place, you know, it, it's just another cost that isn't required you know, depending on, on what, what companies you're looking at, what sectors, what you know, how large the companies are, what markets, you know, you have problems finding assurance for some of them, but that's the place to start. And then do cross checks, I, it, like just, you know, like sanity checks, due diligence. There was an article I, and I, I bookmarked it, I haven't yet read it. So I'm only going by a summary paragraph in the title, but someone, a consulting firm, I want to say was in, in Europe somewhere, just published a pretty big, report that's making waves. It was on, I mean, Exxon was the one that, that um, ExxonMobil was the one that caught my eye, but um, there were a couple other ones in there. And basically what they did was they took the reported emissions and just did a lot of cross-checking, sanity checking, you know, so, so carbon intensity, so carbon emissions, it, 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 absolute emissions measured in tons or megatons or gigatons. And carbon intensity is that tonnage with a um, denominator of some sort either a unit of revenue, like tons of carbon per million dollars of revenue or per hectoliters of, of 
palm oil or square footage or REIT space or whatever. So what they found was that these companies were grossly understating these big oils, grossly understating emissions. And they did that by just doing a lot of cross-checking. You know, it's like looking up at the telescope in space and, and you know, seeing something by, by not seeing it. It's like, well, what's not there, what you can't see tells you what, what's there or what's on it. They did the same thing. They said, well, okay, they're, they're reporting carbon intensity ratios of, of X, but they had revenues of Y that year. Something's not making sense. You know, so they the comps, et cetera, et cetera. They just kept triangulating. Uh, sanity checks, common sense, due diligence, that sort of thing. And you know, beyond that, it's probably a, a can of worms about to open up. But there are other, like when you look, when you look at at when I say a report, a sustainability report, or the company's sustainability um, presence on the website, or the the present, the analyst presentation, whatever the context is, if you do this just a little bit longer and aren't brand new to it, it's almost a sixth sense. You can kind of tell. Well, when there's some greenwashing or green hushing is the new thing, right? So greenwashing is when they're very vocal about green. You know, we're doing green things, we're doing green things. Green hushing is when they kind of hope you, they don't say anything, they don't put it in a report, and they hope you don't know about it or don't find out about it. But you, you like, so uh, it's very quickly one last point. So if you're looking at a sustainability report, there's no assurance at the end. You did whatever cross-checking you can do. Little signs like... um. If, if the report calls itself a sustainability or ESG report, but it still reads like a corporate social responsibility report from five years ago, where there are five glossy pages on the orangutans they save, and then five glossy pages on the, the one solar panel they put on the roof, and that's it, you know, that, then you really need to start questioning. If the, the data, the numbers, whatever emissions or, or you know, uh, female board members or what, if the data is in the text, right? So like if there's a, blo- a paragraph that says, you know, we cut carbon emissions from X to Y, blah, blah. If it's only in the text and there are no supporting charts and tables that make it really easy to get at, that's another red flag. Family, I've actually just studied it. Depending on where, where information appears, uh, like, you know, early in the report or far, far back in the report, uh, whether it's in text, tables, charts, and whether the text, the charts and tables are images in the PDF or they're actually text that you can pull out of the PDF. There's big correlations between those and inaccurate numbers or, or kind of major ESG, um, like public relations blunders down the road. So those are my, my three points on that. What is your take on companies that may be pollutive in nature, but uh, take part in carbon credit exchange or any other forms of uh, green adoption? Yeah, so give you a couple of points just to read it quickly. Um, good for them if, it, if it's a short part of a short-term strategy. And if it's, um, right, it's better than nothing. Plenty of companies that are doing nothing. So if it's part of a strategy, right, and not, not a big part, like I'd rather, well, yeah, well this could also be, be, be answering um, you know, the other part of the question, you know, so for some, also for someone that's new to ESG and, and trying to get a sense of whether or not they're the wool pulled over their eyes, you know, if, if someone has a net zero uh, commitment or promise out there and it's 95% planting trees in Brazil and, and 5% reducing their own emissions, you certainly have to question the net zero uh, target, but, but also question a lot of the other things that are coming from the company. So it, it legitimate 
short-term strategy, and short to medium term, right? If, it, if it's going to take 10 years to, to decarbonize and you want to do offsets for the first half of that, that's a necessary evil in this world. It's better than nothing. Just make sure that the, I'm saying, my opinion is that one would want to make sure that the company, the issuer, doesn't overly rely on offsets and that they don't spin their offsetting in a, in a misleading way. So like they, there are big tech companies out there that, and, and some financials that they can get away, I must say get away with, you gotta be careful with certain sectors um, regarding emissions, right? So financials and, and like tech, scope one emissions is what you actually generate yourself. You know, so a, a widget manufacturer, you know, is gonna produce a lot of scope one emissions, but, but a bank isn't, right? they're running computers and it's probably not even their service. Their, their data center and servers probably outsourcing. So, so banks and tech firms don't have big scope one carbon footprints, but they can have big scope three carbon footprints, which scope three being, scope two is indirect emissions, but from energy use. So if you buy electricity from the utility, scope two is the utility burning coal or whatever. Scope three is every other indirect emissions, that includes your like supply chain and people, you know, that buy your product and, eat all the candy and then throw the box away. Where does the box go? To get landfilled, incinerated. So within scope three are some big numbers, right? So banks, their financed emissions. Now, so take a big bank in, in Southeast Asia that's involved in palm oil or coal. They do a lot of lending, billions of dollars. They don't report scope three. They might not report scope three. So their emissions and the numbers could be really low. But if you count scope three and all the emissions that they finance, so their client, Palm Oil Company A, Palm Oil Company A's scope one emissions is Bank A's scope three emissions or part of Bank A's scope three emissions. So getting back to the offsetting thing, if they use offsets to thump their chest and say, we're, we're, we're doing great and we're going to be net zero or, or carbon neutral is just like subtle difference, but we're going to be carbon neutral in 10 years. And, and it's, it's, it's all offsets and it's all offsets in, in maybe questionable ways uh, or not the most ideal ways. There's a spectrum of quality. So it's just part of a temporary strategy and, you know, don't be a jerk when doing it because like, too many companies take it as a PR opportunity and, spin something that that doesn't exist it, it's greenwashing and that's a problem it's it, it's much better and honestly it's much better for their valuations their stock price their reputation if they're honest you know i've seen i've seen companies that that are egregious carbon emitters do better by being upfront and honest and saying yeah god our legacy assets are dirty but we're doing everything we can and, and they follow through and they keep you updated and provide data then then you got a company that you know, kind of is really clean with whatever their sector, they, you know, they, they're not big emitters, you know, but they, they, they start stretching the truth a little bit here and, and it, it's a total opposite effect. So like everything in the ESG world, in moderation, you know, offsetting is okay, but offsetting is often abused and that's, that's when it's a problem. You know, cut, so, so actual reductions in emissions are most important. Uh, carbon capture, sequentiation, all that kind of stuff is more valuable in, in the overall equation than offsetting. Because off, offsetting is, is, for the most part, um, either passing the buck or delaying something. It's not, 
solving the problem that's that's right in front of us. But but if everybody if everybody said we, we have to just cut emissions, let's not waste time with offsetting, you know, we, we'd never get to solving that problem. So it's it's an important part of the solution, but it can't be a big part of the solution. That's all. Thank you very much for that, Kyle. In the interest of time, we'll have to leave it there. So thank you, everyone uh, who attended. Uh, and thank you, Kyle, for uh, your uh, thorough presentation. If there are any other questions, you can send them uh, either directly to Kyle or you, or you can email us at research at smartkarma.com and we will make sure to share them with Kyle. If you want to engage, to engage uh, Kyle for bespoke research requests, so you can contact your Smart Karma account manager and they can um, help you out in this regard. I would also encourage you to follow Kyle's profile on Smart Karma so that you don't miss any of the insights that he publishes. Uh, and stay tuned for uh, more announcements for the next parts of Kyle's ESG investing series. We will be also linking to the previous sessions on the registration page as well. Finally, uh, thank you to SGX for uh, helping uh, organize this webinar. And uh, thank you once again to Kyle for your time today uh, and for um, sharing uh, your insights. Yeah, absolutely. If, if anybody does have... Um... You know, any follow-up questions or needs clarification, don't hesitate to contact. You know, it's a really simple question because I, I know this one was um, kind of all over the place and, and it's understandable if you want to follow up. I'm happy to, happy to answer them and I'm here. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks. Subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss an episode and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.